So, uh, I feel obliged to kick off this talk in a way that I imagine many talks about marriage do, which is to say I am not even remotely qualified to be standing before you here today speaking about marriage of all things. I have no degree. I am not a counselor or some kind of relationship guru. I have, however, been married a gargantuan six and a half years, as in my marriage is the age of a first grader, which is also to say that my marriage is right around that benchmark of marital infamy, the notorious seven-year itch. While I haven't been scratching any itches, of course, I have to say, between you and me and God and my husband, who was the first to hear this talk, the itches are there. And maybe hunger is a better word than itch. And this hunger has really been present in one way or another from the very beginning. So there you have it, my glistening pedigree, flaky, dissatisfied, wandry, sinner. And that's really how I've approached this talk today, like that helpless and floundering baby in the field from the book of Ezekiel. I have stayed on my knees all the while. So here's the thing I wanna start with and then make sure we carry along with us as we dive in. Aside from the normal bites and bristles that come with being in any kind of close relationship, I have a pretty great marriage as far as I can tell. My husband, Alex, really is my best friend. All I wanna do on any given evening is just to be in his general vicinity. Except for when he gets it in his head to grow his hair out long, I still find him incredibly attractive. He's a great dad, a hard worker, he cleans, he makes me laugh, he replenishes my glass at night, and he's generally up for my antics. And yet, and yet, there remains this aching, both a deep anguish and an expansive hope for something more. These are powerful, often overwhelming longings, and lately I've been leaning into them with a sort of gracious curiosity. And here's what I've identified. I long, these are all really simple by the way, easily attainable I think. I long for peace that lasts, affirmation that lasts, rest that lasts, and then also romance, rescue, passion, adoration, adventure, beauty, something in the way of music that follows you around like a soundtrack, something big, something huge, something all-encompassing. And it's an uncomfortable thing when you finally realize for real, even though you knew it up here all along, that there's actually nothing your spouse can do that would fully satisfy these extraordinary desires. So refrain as best you can from judgment here, but from a similar perspective of gracious curiosity, I started to ask myself questions like, what's really the point of marriage? Where is the real hope in sticking with this same dude for the long haul? This man who has supported me through pregnancy-induced hemorrhoids, who's brought me baby wipes on the side of the road, no questions asked after an emergency bathroom incident. Can you really ever come back from things like this? Most important of all these questions, why is God so into this thing? 
I realized six and a half years in, I didn't have an answer that felt terribly comforting to me. So here's a bit of what Paul famously says about marriage in Ephesians chapter five. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes it and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I am applying it to Christ and the church. So I don't know about you guys, But when people generally pull out this scripture, I feel like we're all supposed to get a really like soft and holy and all-knowing expression on our face as if this answers like all of our really big questions. Like, ah, yes. And then we look soulfully into our spouse's eyes just like the first day we got married. It's the quintessential go-to bit about marriage in the Bible. And without deeper consideration, it can, to me, feel almost frighteningly vague and underwhelming. Like, that's it, God? Marriage was literally the great and booming crescendo of all creation. And this business in Ephesians 5, on the surface of things, just feels so, like, polite and heavily clothed. So I promise I'm not going to leave poor old Ephesians 5 right there, but for now, let's keep moving. A few good and logical cases for marriage, socially speaking, are that it can be a sort of shock absorber for the tough things going on in our lives. It's financially wise, it's better for our kids, it's good for the economy, and it can boost our quality of life. Sure, that's all fine. But then my favorite sort of churchy point for marriage is this sanctifying. Like, oh, well, doesn't that sound like a party? Like, why don't I just stick my hand into a burning bonfire? So all of these are really good things. I am not arguing against them. Of course, marriage has added tremendously to my quality of life. And of course, it has been deeply, painfully sanctifying. And yet, and yet, there is this longing that persists. So whether you're in a marriage that is barely operating because you have tiny babies to take care of, whether you are deeply weary of being single, whether you're in the sunset years of your marriage and you've got it all figured out, go you, or whether you're in a marriage or have left a marriage that is utterly beyond repair, we are all a people who long with both great anguish and expansive hope. We may numb that longing out with things like busyness and bourbon, but take away all that and you'll see. Oftentimes our longings don't even have a name or even a clear direction, but in one way or another, I believe that our greatest desires stem from this want for both love and a story, a big, high stakes, wildly improbable love story that will finally give us peace a love that will quiet all our worn out strivings. Friends, do you share with me even the smallest sense that exact, specific, overwhelming, transformative love is out there? Haven't you also spent most of your lives quietly hunting for it? From the workplace to the refrigerator, to the bar, to the bedroom, almost absolutely 
everywhere. All the logic seems to suggest that we were wrong to be looking for romance like this because it's inevitably going to fade in a marriage, but maybe we are right on the money. We're just primarily looking for it from the wrong guy. When we misidentify our husbands or wives as the main character of our most expansive love story, this is where we'll come up short, always. We'll come up hungry, thirsty, longing for things that cannot be fully satisfied in any one person, Ryan Gosling or Army Hammer or otherwise. When we look to our spouses this way, we've got our eyes on the wrong stretch of sunset. That's a lyric from a song I love called New Tide. And I think it's really gonna help us launch into what we're talking about today. When I look to my husband instead of God as the main efficient of my peace, my rest, my affirmation, even my rescue and grand romance, I've got the wrong stretch of sunset. So hear me out. Here's a sunset. Um, Alex's role is really that little spot of soft orange pink up there, follow the area, era, era um, that lets you know somewhere in the sky there's a real show happening. The better portion with brilliant splatters of purple and magenta with frenzied strokes of fire and fury, that's over there. And he has a name too. When it comes to looking at an actual sunset, we aren't content to just see the first sliver of it, right? I went to college in Malibu and lived north of the campus near Westward Beach, which by the way is about the most perfect sunset viewing spot I've ever encountered. And I can remember many days when I'd leave class around the end of the day and then spot those first soft stretches of sunset. And what did I do? Say to myself, oh, that's nice, and call it a day? No. Chills would run up my spine as I realized with a thrill, it's coming. And I'd hightail it, Mach 20 with my shirt on fire to see the real deal over at Westward Beach. The, those first hints of sunset have a critical role though, don't they? Our spouse stretches of sunset. They draw your eye to the actual magic. My point and what I've come to believe is that our spouses are actually these flawed, hazy little orange indicators who can point us toward the better stretch of sunset where we might actually find the fulfillment to all our most desperate needs and wants, to all our wildest hopes and dreams. Jeremiah 31 verses 21 and 22 say this. This will truly be the weirdest scripture you've ever read in terms of marriage, but go with me here. Set up road signs, put up guideposts, take note of the highway, the road that you take. Return, O virgin Israel, return to your towns. How long will you wander, O unfaithful daughter? So the settings of these verses is in Jerusalem, leading up to the Israelites' exile to Babylon. The Israelites, as always, have been acting like a bunch of ding-dongs, and yet here, God tells them in his abundant grace that he has actually booked them a round-trip ticket to Babylon. Eventually, he's going to lead them back home to Jerusalem. And the image that I most latch onto here is that of the guideposts. God tells them to set up structures on their way out, 
something that will ultimately point these wayward people back in the direction of home. And follow me here, but marriage at its best can be one of God's most effective breadcrumbs pointing us homeward back toward him. All of God's creation, which includes marriage, is in one way or another a reflection, an indicator of who he is. My pastor, Nick Bogardis, spoke on the triumphal entry this Palm Sunday, and here's what he pointed out that really captured me. When the Pharisees asked Jesus to rebuke all of his loud and crazy worshipers, Jesus responds, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. God's abundant creation cannot help but worship him. And guys, we, mankind, are the crown of his creation. The stones on the ground bring absolutely nothing to the table, right? They're cold, they're hard, they're sharp, they just lie there. Maybe that sounds a little like your bozo spouse. Yet even stones cannot help from time to time from nothing of their own inanimate ability, but illustrate the radical glory of their creator. From great literature to a sunset, to a meal, to coffee with a friend, we have these imperfect guideposts all around us that if we have the eyes to see it, cannot help but point us back to God. And as in Ephesians 5, we see marriage referenced time and again as most representative, most indicative of Christ's relationship with his people. No no matter how deeply broken, how hideously under attack, marriage is the closest thing on earth that resembles our heavenly union with the king of love. Which is probably why, next to the church itself, Satan has it out for marriage than almost anything else in the world. It's one of his biggest threats. But there is hope. In my study Bible, commentators actually describe these specific guideposts from Babylon back to Jerusalem as tombstone-shaped. And that imagery, especially when it comes to the struggling institution of marriage, it just like, it, it completely moves me because these tombstones referenced in Jeremiah are actually road signs towards home. So death, sin, even the awful, truly painful realizations that our husbands and wives are not enough, that all their love and care and adoration is not enough. With the eyes of grace, we can similarly view the tombstones of our marriages, not as a stopping point, but as a blessed guidepost leading us into the arms of the only one who is enough. Remember, death on Good Friday, God's grand gesture of love for us, doesn't stop at his death on the cross, no. The cross was just that heinous, tombstone-like guidepost pointing us toward Easter morning, where the tombstone miraculously becomes a sign of life. And like the disciples after Calvary, we're so often focused on the wrong stretch of sky. We look dejected at our spouses like the disciples looked at the stranger on the road to Emmaus. To quote Fleming Rutledge, we had hoped They couldn't see, and neither do we, that love himself was standing right in front of them. 
This is so frequently the root of our dissatisfaction with our marriages. First, we do not fully grasp God's immense love for us and so thirsty, so very unfulfilled. We place that full weight on the fragile shoulders of our spouses who hard as they may try cannot carry it. Marriage, the sinners we married, are the tombstone-shaped indicator to our lasting rest, our biggest romance, not the big show itself. At its worst, marriage shows us our unfathomable need for Jesus. And at its best, it reveals like a sunset his unfathomable goodness and glory. It truly honestly makes me feel a little giddy to think of Alex in both these capacities. And I actually think it's close to what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 5. So let's expand on this guidepost metaphor and the grand enormity of the capital S story we've been called into by taking a look at C.S. Lewis and what he called northernness. In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, Lewis describes how as a teenager reading mythology or listening to certain music, he would be overcome by the sensation of pure northernness. And he described this northernness as a bright shadow, a glimpse of the beauty of another world that awakened a yearning both for that world and for the experience of desiring that world. I absolutely love this idea. And as you can imagine, it resonates with me on a profound level. Our own experiences of northernness might occur when we witness a particular piece of art or read a comic book or watch a certain film or while wandering in nature or a foreign country or while listening to live music. These worldly moments are characterized by an otherworldliness a feeling of utter transcendence, like a ray breaking through rain clouds, a bright shadow not unlike those first bright shadows of sunset. Northernness in these bright shadows, like guideposts, indicate, point towards, lead us back as returning exiles to a world and a story beyond our own. As it were, following Lucy Pevensey through the wardrobe where she found her own guideposts of sorts might be the most perfect instance of northernness I can think of from my own childhood. Kevin Van Hooser says in his chapter of The Romantic Rationalist that for Lewis, the world is full of bright shadows. Like the stones, the earth cannot help but reveal God's glory. And Van Hooser says that it's the imagination that perceives the brightness, the holy otherness in the shadow. So marriage at its best, mind you, in all its holy mystery, holds some of the greatest bright shadow potential as tombstone-shaped guideposts that point us back toward that love that supersedes all love. I find this vision for marriage so much more weighty and critical and beautiful than say just mental and financial stability. But we need gracious imaginations to more expectantly perceive these moments of brightness from our spouses. Lewis said in his selective literary essays, for me, reason is the natural organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning. 
Imagination, producing new metaphors or revivifying old, is not the cause of truth, but its condition. What he's saying here is that we cannot perceive truth in a way that inscribes it onto our hearts without using our imaginations. And whether we realize it or not, we constantly employ our imaginations in the Christian life, right? Look at the Eucharist or different biblical doctrines like unity with Christ. We cannot possibly make any meaningful sense out of our literal, physical, spiritual unity with Christ without employing our imaginations. We may be able to know it up here, but it won't take root in our hearts until we imagine how and that it could be true. Without our imaginations, the eyes of our hearts enlightened, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.18, we cannot make meaningful sense of God's actual, tangible, in the flesh love for us through Jesus. And we certainly cannot make sense of ourselves, our broken, needy, pitiful, rebellious selves as fixed and immovable recipients of that steadfast love. Similarly, we cannot make sense of the earthly reflection of that bright love, marriage, this binding covenant between two selfish idiots without using a little imagination. Let's practice and we're gonna start small. Let me show you this clip from one of my favorite movies as a middle schooler which stands out as another of my most profound experiences of northernness, and you're gonna laugh when you see what it is. It's from Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. What follows is the scene that shows these two characters laying eyes on each other for the very first time. So let's watch it. that okay um well that that was awfully choppy raise your hand if you've seen this movie before and you can just go with me there okay that's good so I fell in love with this movie when I saw it in theaters I remember aching over it being somehow physically altered by this particular scene as a young teenager taking it all in longing at a cellular level for a love like this And of course, the scene is a moving example of love at first sight. But instead of stopping there, what if we take it a step further? 
again, the Israelites don't just look at a guidepost as a giant rock, right? And we aren't content with just the suggestion of a sunset. Both of those things point us to something. Uh, and I was gonna play that again, but I feel like it was choppy and ineffective, so we're gonna move on. But what I wanted you to do there, what, what I was gonna have you do here is rewatch this, looking at Romeo um, instead as God himself and see what you notice. And I'll tell you what I notice here. And I think it would be a powerful exercise. Go home and look at that clip on your own. Um, but when I look at that through, using my imagination, looking at that clip through this lens with Romeo as God, I notice the fish, if you notice the fish tank in there and how God might admire uh, the created world. There's so much metaphor here, right? And I also notice the lyrics before he sees Juliet for the first time that go, watching stars without you, my soul cried. This is why God created us to begin with, right? To be with us. And not only in our general vicinity, but intimately united with us. And the idea that God might look upon me like Leonardo DiCaprio does when he first gets the full picture of Claire Danes, it undoes me, y'all. Like the lover in Song of Songs says, you have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes. And I believe in every inch of my body, I have to believe that because of Jesus, this is exactly how God looks at me. It's exactly how he looks at you with surprise, delight, longing, adoration, whimsy, and an unrelenting urgency to be nearer to you. Van Hooser says, the imagination helps us to taste and see the goodness of God, the brightness in the shadow lands. And I think in the same way that we just practiced with this clip from Romeo and Juliet, utilizing the eyes of our hearts, our imaginations, we can notice the many bright shadows, like for instance, our spouses, these earthly expressions of divine thought and see a clearer picture of the divine himself and his otherworldly love for us. This I think is the gospel hope in marriage. Let me, no, skip that. Um, the passionate, romantic, consuming, sacrificial, satisfying love we see in places like film and literature, the love and affirmation we longed for when we were kids, the love and affirmation many of us taste from our husbands and wives on and off in a lifetime. These bright shadows of the world let us know we have all this and more in the person of Jesus. God urges in Jeremiah 31, three, one of my very favorite verses, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Listen to how Gearhardus Voss unpacks this verse, which I think is already up here. The prophet means to describe by this term something quite extraordinary, something well nigh inconceivable, a supreme wonder in that land of wonder which religion can never cease to be. Love is to him the highest form of the spiritual embrace of person by person. To ascribe it to God in connection with a creature is at the farthest remove from being a figure of speech. It means that in the most literal sense, he has concentrated all the light and warmth of his affection, all the prodigious wealth of his resources, 
his endless capacity of delight upon the heart-to-heart union between the pious and himself. And what God for his part brings into this union has a generosity, a sublime abandon, an absoluteness that measured by human analogies we can only designate as the highest and purest type of devotion. It is named love for this very reason that God puts into it his heart and soul and mind and strength and gathers all his concerns with his people into the focus of this one desire. I don't know about y'all, but I think that's better than Shakespeare or any other love story we could write for ourselves. Song of Songs says, my lover is mine and I am his. And it sounds so cheesy, but it mimics God's repeated sentiment throughout the Old Testament and particularly in Jeremiah when he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. He tells his people, which is to say us, over and over and over again, hey, the only things you bring to this relationship are whining and misplaced desires and mutiny and mistrust, and you constantly want more than the good gifts I have already given to you. And yet, and yet, I am yours, and I'm gonna prove it to you. Enter Jesus. Can you imagine a love like this? Let's come back to poor, polite Ephesians 5. I think it's important here to look at the very first verse in this chapter where Paul says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God. What is Paul asking us to do here? To pretend he is inciting our imaginations. God is infinitely loving, sacrificial, gracious, patient, exuberant, whole. We are none of these things. And yet Paul says, pretend you're those things. Um, Okay, P, how hard could that be? It starts to smell a little bit like law if we don't take a further look. But then he immediately gives us the instruction on the how, which is nothing but grace. The ability we have to love, even to fake love, comes by first resting secure in the fact that we are dearly loved. Imagining ourselves as dearly loved, letting that truth penetrate our hearts, resting in God's perfect and unwavering and particular affection for us is the energizing overflow factor behind loving our spouses. When the spirit has drawn my eyes back to the better stretch of sunset, when I have first witnessed and received the impossible otherworldly love of Jesus, when grace has played it like a story before the eyes of my sin sick heart, Alex is freed from the suffocating burden of having, having to satisfy all of my huge and unrelenting needs and wants. This freedom creates a little pocket of space where I am then free to see him as he is. That he too is the unique object of God's desire and affection. Even when he's doing everything wrong, according to me, he is yet impossibly beloved 
according to God. This is where we begin to detect a brightness in this world cursed with shadow. The wellspring of our own unwavering belovedness becomes a unique vantage point from which we might more robustly imagine our spouses as similarly lovable. From there, we actually love our people freely. And in doing so, we offer them something like a brightness in the shadowlands of their worlds. And if you let your imagination take you there, I think this is about the most incredible role any of us could ever hope to play this side of heaven. That while we are foolish, selfish, obstinately and offensively sinful, by some abundant grace and the spirit alone, God's light might yet shine through us. DZ sums it up well in Seculosity when he says, God's love does not insist on proof of lovability, but produces it. It's important to say that I don't think any of this happens like switch flipping magic. One cannot white knuckle wrangle a bright shadow out of oneself or any other person. But like Casey Musgraves sings, I'm all right with a slow burn, which sounds a little, dare I admit, like sanctification. So we can love our spouses generously, resting in the knowledge that they are at once both as deeply flawed and as dearly loved by God as we are. All is satisfied in the greater King Jesus, the lover of our souls, who was always meant to be the chief object of our affection because first and foremost, we were the chief object of his affection. Our people are image bearers, bright shadows, unlikely indicators of the divine. If we cannot know that truth, perhaps we can imagine it. And if we cannot imagine it, there is still hope because even the dumb old rocks on the ground cannot help however irregularly, but to reveal God's glory every once in a while. I have found a renewed sense of wonder and joy in approaching Alex from this new favorite posture of gracious curiosity with prayerful expectation that God might reveal himself and his love to me, the quality of it, the in the fleshness of it through this curious person I've chosen to spend my life with. And I found that a good enough place to start in this endeavor was by taking stock of how we began in the first place. Of course, the bright shadows abounded. In the short months before Alex and I officially got together, there were a series of events that began to indicate this guy had feelings for me beyond friendship. Late night handholding, in-class flirtations, we were in graduate school, listening on full blast to Passion Pit's cover of the song Dreams. Each of these instances, the brightest of shadows that I can see now pointing towards the chosenness I have before God, the longing God has for me, the inevitability of him coming for me with all the fervor of a warrior. Later, when we were dating, Alex made me a graphic novel entitled The Harrowing Adventures of Charlotte Botsford, my maiden name, in which our courageous protagonist was able to conjure anything from her imagination using only a magical looking glass. I had never felt more seen in my entire life. Almost seven years in, I can tend to worry that much of the brightness in this marriage shadow has faded. But then, a few months ago, I called Alex at work to pick a fight about I don't remember what. 
as you do. It was not a good look for me, and he knew it. But instead of coming home and placing the brunt of that ridiculous conversation on me, he walked through the door carrying cookie dough, a bundle of daffodils, and a bottle of my favorite fancy Cabernet. I was like, huh. It like totally took me off guard. I could not have deserved it less in that moment. That night, the brightest of shadows reflecting grace upon grace upon grace. And now, with the eyes of my heart peeled wide open, I see brightness in the most mundane corners of our marriage. Alex has tickled my back while I fall asleep just about every single night we've been together. He makes me coffee in the morning, even though he leaves for work before any of us are awake. He wakes up the kids on the weekends so that I can sleep. And when I haven't shaved my legs all winter, he pretends not to notice. On the surface of things, it is more comfortable and exotic to imagine being chosen without the all, all the unsavory bits like chronic irritability and gnarly body stuff, and instead solely on the basis of one's charm and undeniable sex appeal. But to be chosen day in and day out, unsavory bits and all, by the seemingly simple gesture that both of you drove towards home at the end of the day instead of the southern border, it's almost unbelievable. It almost doesn't even make sense. And it's maybe just a little bit like music that follows you around like a soundtrack. And with a bit of imagination, it can be a sweet, imperfect little whisper of the most impossible, improbable love story of them all. It's a story with an ending, or rather a beginning, of which even the purest northernness cannot do justice. As sure as the sun sets, that world and story beyond what we can see is coming in fullness, and bouts of its brightness break through in this dark, difficult world every single day, sometimes in the unlikeliest places, like year six and a half of an ordinary marriage. Let me conclude our talk with one final instance of something like northernness I experienced a few years ago from a song by the band M83, which I'm sure you've heard in like commercials and stuff, but blew me away when I heard it the first time. Um, here are the lyrics. Um, when I play it for you, I want you to close your eyes. And since we didn't really get to do our imagination um, uh, exercise beforehand, go with me here, okay? Um, let the song point you elsewhere, onward, homeward, like a guidepost or a bright shadow. Perhaps you might imagine in that otherworldly sense, Jesus' march to the cross on your behalf, on my behalf, on your spouse's behalf, a march that spanned centuries, all the way from the very beginning. Go there with me.
Psalm 119 says, the earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. And this song for me is like some strange, surprising, earthly memento of that love. Or as Lewis puts it, like news from a country we have never yet visited. We are drawn to beauty, to bright shadows like this, as in that first small stretch of sunset, as in love at first sight because we suspect in our core that an impossible, perfect, deep, and wide, and sprawling love story is out there just over the horizon. We long for it with both a deep anguish and an expansive hope. And God created us as creatures who long. He also created us so that nothing would satisfy that longing but him. And even our most desperate longings are guideposts to the one who we will one day see with our eyes and touch with our hands, to the one who has already met all our direst needs. This is the epic, deeply romantic love story you've been called into and written into, one in which a perfectly righteous man loved you so very much that he died for you of all people. And that world of which we hear tender whispers all around us through things like art and music and even stones and our spouses, that wild and winsome world we long for where rest and beauty exist in perfect, equal measure, where God has made absolutely all things new and if I had to bet also nude, that world is coming. And there will be no more shadows, only bright. I'm on my way, the M83 song repeats, and remarkably, the last thing we hear from Jesus in all of scripture is this in Revelation. Yes, I am coming soon. Until then, that God would grant us the eyes and imagination to notice the bright shadows of his steadfast love lavished all around us, particularly through the people we've married even at their very worst, even at our very worst, may we point each other by your grace homeward 
to the one whose affections never waver, to the one from long ago who has already come to rescue us, to the lover of our souls who is like C.S. Lewis says, still about to be. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, come. Open the eyes of our hearts wide open. Let your unyielding love for us come to life like scenes played out in a movie, that it would penetrate our hearts, that it would change us, that we would see our spouses through your eyes and our love for them would grow to look more and more like your love for them. Thank you for calling us into the greatest story of all and what you have put together, Lord, let no man, including me, put us under. Amen.